This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Cute as shit. Oh, 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 skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. again here we are again are you sick of me yet i'm sick of me yet can you dig it everybody hello i can my name is sam lacrosse this is the most disorganized introductions podcast i've ever heard how are we doing today everybody i am doing well so it is a monday it is monday november 1st 2021 we are officially only two months away to a new year 2022 which is exciting stuff so that means we are on a roll finishing out these last couple podcasts throughout the rest of the year so 2021 has been very, very busy for me. A lot of things have changed. A lot of things are going on, like a lot of people. But, you know, this end of the year is going to, it's, I think, almost literally going to fucking kill me. I was on FaceTime with my parents yesterday, and I was just talking about how I feel really kind of just overall exhausted from a lot of different angles in terms of, like, physically, you know, I have the New York City Marathon this Sunday that I'm running, and then I have, you know, all this stuff that I'm doing on the side with this, and then my other projects I'm doing at work, and all this other shit. So it's like, I was thinking about, you know, what I want to do to recap this week, and it took me back to a post that I did in my Escape to the Matrix series I did in August and September of 2020, which was basically like my method of talking about technology and what it's doing to our society and to our minds and to ourselves. And so I basically did a four-week series on technology, just kind of stuff that I thought about it, you know, with social media, with the advancements in technology across industry, everything else, like artificial intelligence, all that kind of shit. Um... And I think the last thing, so I called basically like we are stuck in like literally the matrix, like we get, you know, in the movie, like where we are in a completely simulated world and every, all this other shit. And we are to a degree because we sleepwalk through a lot of life, a lot of our stuff, especially in the pandemic is now digital now with dating and work and, you know, all this other shit. So it was just like a way for me to kind of bring myself to come to grips with reality in a new and different way. And I think this is the one that kind of put the cap on it. And I think going back to it will kind of help me deal with like the next two months and kind of see like where I was at this time perspective of being really honestly very mentally exhausted in terms of how my brain was getting pulled in different directions and turned into a pretzel. So I think it, like going back to this can really help me see what, you know, my outlook on things are now when I'm like pressed with all this shit. And I think it was really helpful to get that out. And I hope it's really helpful to you. So here we go. Um, so in order to, so again, I alluded to this thing called the matrix, a simulated world, watch the movie. I have actually never seen the movie, but it's a simulated world, all digital, where we kind of just, you know, our brains are kind of on autopilot. We live in, in there, all this other stuff. So 
in order to escape from the matrix, in order to finally get and break out and really kind of analyze where we are and where our, how our minds interact with the world, we need to go to the apex of what I believe is the main vice of our current technological environment in all facets of our life and in terms of distraction in general, which is mindfulness versus mindlessness, which brings us to the title of this week's podcast. The title comes from the legendary Smashing Pumpkins song, Bullet with Butterfly Wings. Coming out in the peak of the 1990s grunge movement, the song was an instant classic, vaulting the group into legend status and solidifying them as one of the defining groups of the 1990s. As the lead single for their album, Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness, which in my opinion might be the most underrated rock album of all time, you be the judge on that one yourself, it set the tone for an album that would take the rock and roll world by storm, amplifying the angst of their target audience and making waves across an entire musical landscape. Billy Corgan, the lead singer of the group, was asked about the meaning of the song in an interview with Rock 103.5 Chicago, where the group is originally from. His answer shocked a lot of people, including myself. Quote, Freud had this concept that each of us is a psychic bullet, that if it can be removed, we can be psychologically healed. A deep answer to a surprisingly deep song. Sigmund Freud is arguably the greatest psychological mind of our time, totally flipping what he studied on its head with the discovery and implementation of psychoanalysis, among other things. Throughout the song, we can see this theme being played out by multi- play- being played out multiple times. Corgan compares himself to a rat in a cage, trapped in a prison of his own rage and psychological trauma. He also compares himself to Jesus, Jesus is an only son, tell me I'm the chosen one, throwing a theological wrench into the scope of the song as well. Although, unlike Jesus, he doesn't believe that he can be redeemed, and I still can believe that I cannot be saved. The bullet with butterfly wings is lodged too deep into his brain. So, maybe I'm overthinking this on one hand. I do it with everything else, so why would this be different? But I don't think I am. Like all great musicians, Billy Corgan and the Smashing Pumpkins mean everything they say. There are no accidents. There are no misplaced or misused words or verbiage. The the world is truly a vampire, and we are the source of the blood that is being being drained, listen to the song for a really long and droned out, drained, out of it for its pleasure. The bullet with butterfly wings can be a lot of things. It's a wolf in sheep's clothing. It kills you while looking harmless. It's a hidden vice, a snake in the grass. A lot like technology and our modern use of it. Companies and media have figured out how to weaponize that vampireness and allow us to be the source of blood to be drained for their money and our false sense of validation. They've numbed our sense of meaning with mindlessness and have switched that mindfulness, mindlessness for our old form of mindfulness. The script has been flipped. Mindfulness is going away fast. It's not profitable enough. It doesn't sell advertisements. It doesn't make you look woke on an Instagram story. The Buddhists understand this. The last couple of years, much like many people around my age, I've gone on some sort of spiritual journey, which I've mentioned before a lot and I've gone in depth with in America's Religion Problem. Go back a couple of weeks, you'll see what I'm talking about. This is not to sound cliche. I truly believe this is important. This is not about, quote, finding myself or any other bullshit that, again, makes you look woke on an Instagram story. This is a search for meaning, one with the goal of finding out if anything I believe was real. I wanted to understand where I stood on things and if they really held up in a general context. I do not consider myself a practicing Buddhist, particularly now, but I found their culture to be incredibly enriching and rock solid, for the most part, I should say. I find the wisdom of their culture in ways to be incredibly enlightening, no pun intended, and truthful. Most notably, the practice of mindfulness and how essential it is to our daily lives. We do not do it nearly enough. I don't. And I'm hoping that this post and this podcast can change that both for me and for you. 
The most famous of these teachers, and the one that has helped me the most, is Vietnamese monk Thich Nhat Hanh. Hanh was active in the Vietnamese protest back in the 1960s and was a close ally of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. If you want to talk about coming out of hell, look no further than being a Buddhist in 1960s Vietnam. They were constantly persecuted by the Christian regime of Ho Chi Minh and were not allowed to practice their religion at all. The punishment for doing so was brutal and swift. Yet the Buddhists persevered. One of the greatest assets that Han, more on him later, and his other followers portrayed was mindfulness. It allowed them to climb out of that hell, to persevere. Han has now written dozens of books on his way of looking at life, and is looked to as one of the greatest spiritual teachers of the last 50 years. I do not want to sound like I... I do not want to act like other religions do not also do this as well, because they do in their own little ways. Christians and Muslims do this with prayers. Yoga and lighting candles teach this as well. Meditation teaches also. But why? Why do so many people practice this? The reason is because living in the moment is how we pull the bullet with butterfly wings out of our brains. It's how we fend off the vampire of the world. It's how we free ourselves from addiction and from compulsion. It's how we say a calm, no thank you, to the mindless distractions of our world and tend trend towards things that are in the real world itself. It is the key to escaping from the matrix. Our world has been poisoned by mindlessness. We do not seek mindfulness simply because we've been numb to it by the ease of our mindless culture and all of its temptations. That is what enables us to be ruled by things such as our tribal usage of technology. That is the root of our division through them. It's easy to call someone a Marxist or a racist in a Facebook post where all of your friends who enable your narcissism can come to your defense. It's harder to do it in person, you know, when you're actually face-to-face with a person. Mindlessness cripples our communication. It makes us hate one another and sling mud that does not need need to be slung. It makes being right more important than getting it right. It promotes fantasy over reality. It cuts out the necessity of suffering in order to achieve meaning. It is the root of the matrix. It is what feeds the machine and makes us its slaves. So in this podcast, we will be looking at how to achieve the opposite, mindfulness. When we can get to a state where we promote mindfulness over mindlessness, we will begin to tip the scales back into our favor. We will use technology and everything around it to enable rather than disable all the things listed in the above paragraph. We will treat one another better, or at least with a little more respect, hopefully. We will come to terms that we are all fucked up in our own individual ways and that your self-concept and suffering is not better than anyone else's, anyone at all. So to accomplish this, we must look at what mindfulness is and how it's being taken away, why should you want to rest- why you should want to restore it, and what you can do to practice it. So at the end of the day, maybe Billy Corgan was wrong. Maybe we can, indeed, be saved. To find mindlessness and fully bra- mindfulness and break away from the matrix of our technologically advanced world, at least enough to avoid destroying ourselves in the process, mindfulness is an essential part of the recipe. The problem is, not a lot of people have thought much about what this means or how it impacts you as a person. So, naturally, we should start from the ground up. 
According to the dictionary, the definition for, of the word mindfulness is, quote, the practice of maintaining a non-judgmental state of heightened or complete awareness of one's thoughts, emotions, or experiences on a moment-to-moment -moment basis. That's a pretty loaded definition. Lots of big words. I don't waste your time breaking down the entire thing, although I do need, think a couple of specific words and phrases need to be deconstructed. The use of the word non-judgmental is not meant to convey a sense of you not analyzing anything or forming an opinion of it, at least in my opinion. It simply means being objective. You're seeing your thoughts clearly for what they really are. Quote, moment to moment means you observe everything going on around you, every thought that creeps into your head. To sum this up, I draw from my, my friend Thich Nhat Hanh, the Buddhist monk that has helped teach millions of people about mindfulness that I mentioned earlier. In Buddhism, mindfulness is perhaps the cornerstone of its philosophy. Derived from sati, the first factor in the famed seven factors of enlightenment, it is the route to gaining peace within oneself. Han, now 93 years old, has helped develop and popularize this concept throughout the modern world to make it a staple of mental health, physical well-being, and various forms of therapy. The most enlightening non-direct religious text I've ever read is by Han, Living Buddha, Living Christ. In the book, Han compares the two most dominant religions of all time, Buddhism and Christianity, and tries to form harmony between the two of them by showing their similarities. There are not many things more historically divisive than religion, and an act of unity between two titans of it was a welcome sight. Han devotes an entire chapter to mindfulness devoted both to Buddhism and Christian contexts. Han describes his every action, and every part, action, part of every action, as filled with intent and filled with purpose. Every grain of rice he eats, every breath he takes, every step he walks is done so with intent. As put by the Great One himself, quote, Aware of the suffering caused by unmindful consumption, I vow to cultivate good health, both physical and mental, for myself, my family, and my society by practicing mindful eating, drinking, and consuming. I vow to ingest only items that preserve peace, well-being, and joy in my body, in my consciousness, and in the collective body and consciousness of my family and society. I am determined not to use alcohol or any other intoxicant or to ingest foods or other items that contain toxins, such as certain TV programs, books, magazines, films, and conversations. I am aware that to damage my body or my consciousness with these poisons is to betray my ancestors, my parents, my society, and future generations. I will work to transform violence, fear, anger, and confusion in myself and society by practicing a diet for myself and for society. I understand that a proper diet is crucial for self-transformation and the transformation of society. End quote. Okay, big deal, some might say. A guy likes to eat healthy and preach wide-ranging concepts about his dieting habits, so what? But Han wasn't just talking about what he eats. Note the other, quote, toxins he names. Forms of media, conversations, excessive pessimistic emotions, historical context, his family. Mindfulness is an all-embodying, all-consuming thing. It touches every part of our lives should we choose to see it. And we should see it. Because Han is right, you see. A proper diet is crucial for self-transformation and the transformation of society. Just as a shitty diet is, just as a shitty diet is crucial for self-destruction and the destruction of society. A diet of mindfulness enriches. A diet of mindlessness, oof, God, mindlessness decays. Our world, at least in the one in which we live, is living on a shitty diet. We'd never make it past the dreaded week two of The Biggest Loser. We wouldn't have the hard work or the dedication, as Dolbeck Quince would say. We're living in a societal toothache, getting showered with proverbial sugar and too sweet lemonade, not knowing that we're rotting away ourselves away by the second. Our mindfulness is being taken away, 
and being taken away fast. But if it's so crucial, why don't we do anything to stop it? Why don't we create an avenue to practice mindfulness instead of the mindless behavior we engage in? Well, because we cannot seem to tune out the noise. It's incredibly difficult to be silent in a world full of noise. It's a vampire, remember? It sucks all the good stuff that we do out and replaces it with meaningless filler that doesn't contribute to anything except for a short-term validation. Short-term validation feels good, long-term health not so much. 2 plus 2 equals 4. The problem with this is, when we constantly surround ourselves with noise, silence by nature goes away. We can no longer exist in a world that doesn't selfishly cater to our whims of distraction. We cannot take a step back and detach from our reality. Reality, excuse me. We cannot create an atmosphere where we thrive in times of noise and times of silence, of mindfulness. When you go to school or you go to work, you are, if you're in the right field, busy at least for the majority of the day. You have a lot going on. There are calls to make, meetings to hold, tests to take, and lectures to absorb and question. Your mind is constantly in the moment. There is no off switch. There cannot be in these moments. You must be dialed in. You must be focused. You're completely absorbed in the task at hand. But then you go home. Your day ends. You have no more dragons to slay during that day. For me, working from home, that little black box of death, hint, my computer, that contains my work life, stays closed. I do not open it. I do not want to open it. Why? Because that is work. It should stay at work. But what do we do when we get home? We engage in a different level of what we do at school or work. We simply choose another vehicle in order to do so. We completely fucking drown ourselves. We flip on social media and scroll for hours. We go to frat parties and drink enough natty lights to make your grandmother take a bath in holy water. We binge the office for the fourth time in the past three years. It's just so fucking good, we all say. But why do we do this? In my estimation, we do this because we think it's something completely different from what we did during the day. Since these activities are lower in cognitive brain power necessary, or at least probably should be, they must be better, right? Wrong. In fact, I would argue that they're worse. Much worse. You don't get an excess of dopamine hits when you're creating a call list or a spreadsheet at work, or when you're calculating the fourth derivative of whatever the fuck in calc. Whatever the fuck you're studying for, or whatever the fuck you're studying for in the history of your gender pronouns class. You simply get them done because you have to. They're a part of your essential guide to life. If you work and do your job in adequate fashion, get a check on the 1st and 15th of every month. If you work and study hard, you get a fancy sheet of paper with your name on it in four-ish years that allows you to get a job and get paid on the 1st and 15th of every month. But you do get them when you're absorbed in your superficial world that you think takes you away from the stress of what you believe is mindful, your school or work. You chase them. You crave them. You're so deprived of them during the day that you drink yourself into a proverbial stupor of validation and mindless activity in order to escape. But we need to ask ourselves, are the first activities mindful in the first place? And I would argue that they're not. Because think about it. There is no heightened state of awareness when you're doing at school or at work, if you're being 100% honest with yourself. You aren't trying to self-actualize and you're trying to decrease your your work and process inventory. You aren't trying to unblock your seventh chakra and keep your internal energy vibrating at a high frequency when you're cleaning a bedpan on the trauma floor. You're not observing every angle and element of the room when you're in dry needling a patient to spasm out in a spot of lower back pain. You're on autopilot, sticking from mindless task to mindless task for the majority of your day until you get freed when your shift ends. 
Sorry to shit in your life's ambition slash work's cornflakes. But your life's ambition slash work makes you money. It allows you some sense of purpose and well-being in your stance in the world. For that reason, your school and work is important. That's why every job is important. Should it be following in the proper context of the law and not harming and or infringing upon everyone else's right to do the same? That's comparative value advantage. But what of the after work slash school behavior? Think about it. What do you do after work? Probably some combination of the activities I named above. You might pleasure yourself sexually for the fuck of it. If you're lucky, you'll have someone else do it for you. If you're a decent human being, you'll return the favor. But it's all equally as mindless. Most of us don't give a shit to check ourselves before we wreck ourselves. And our digital technology has enabled this more than ever before. We think we're escaping from our mindless matrix, but we're only red-pilling ourselves back in. We never leave. We only make it worse by whoring our brains out to the vices of the world even further. And we don't even get a damn paycheck for it. We should be ashamed of ourselves. We enable our digital technology to, to twist our minds, Obi-Wan Kenobi voice, by engaging in low-quality content relations and low-end relationship nudges until we dwarf ourselves into mindless behavior that ceases to stop. We forego the necessary exports of our mind because we don't want to put in the effort truly to be mindful of anything. That is the true vice, and that is what keeps us imprisoned. To free ourselves from the matrix, we have to want to restore our mindfulness. I'm not recommending that you be mindful all the time. It's impossible. Even the hardcore Buddhist monks and all their religious leaders can't do it. They've tried, and they've done a lot of crazy shit because of their mindfulness. But no one can be present all the time. We have to sleep. We have to give our minds a break. That's an easy way to destroy them, too. Just ask Hitler or any totalitarian leader of the 20th century. They became so deluded in their, quote, heightened awareness that they thought they could fix the whole damn world. They killed hundreds of millions of people instead. Whoops. But we need it to some degree. Odds are, unless you really need some serious therapy, you will not become the essence of a 20th century totalitarian dictator, and this is a good thing. Your desire to restore your mindfulness should not only come because you know it's the right thing to do, but also because you know the consequences should you be ignorant not to persist in that direction. So, after that long, philosophical, and spiteful discussion, hopefully you get the point. We need to restore our state of mindfulness into our lives. We should not be, it should not be completely dominant, but it's currently being choked out, not in the kinky fun way. There must be balance. Both must be allowed to coexist. We cannot isolate ourselves from our technology in the world, because that would make us recluses. We would suffer terribly. But we cannot fuck our brains to death with mindlessness either. That would make us addicts. We're already there, if you remember my last, my last podcast I did on this topic, and we shouldn't make it worse. But, like most humans, we generally need reasons to justify doing anything. We do everything, like literally everything, based on our emotions. We then use reason to justify it. Our fast-feeling brain will do whatever the hell they please, but we need our slow-thinking brain to justify them. But in my opinion, mindfulness should be an emotion-based decision. Well, all of them are, but you get my point. You should want to escape the matrix. You should want to regain control of your mind and your life. 
You should want to discipline yourself enough to create a state of somewhat control over the simulation that we call life. That somewhat control is mindfulness. It is the ultimate of the mind ruling over itself and everything it commands. It is the discipline that enforces order. It is the battlement that fortifies against chaos. It is the map that allows us to navigate our various peaks and valleys of our experiences. It allows us to see the bigger picture when the picture seems small. And that is the first reason why we should spend time trying to reinforce and practice it. In order to understand the peaks and valleys of our experiences, we first need to understand the peaks and valleys going on within ourselves. By practicing mindfulness, the complete and heightened awareness of one's thoughts and behaviors, we can put ourselves in the best position in order to create this atmosphere in which we thrive. This is exactly what an enforced mindfulness does. It allows you to gain a greater understanding of yourself. It allows you to tune into your inner thoughts and your dialogue that you host within yourself in order to bring out your innermost convictions. It doesn't matter what they are, really, unless you're thinking about Anakin Skywalker and Jedi younglings, just as long as you sense them as they are. It is also worth noting that these thoughts do not necessarily have to be all good thoughts. That's mindless positivity. And, as we all know, mindless positivity is not positivity at all. It is merely avoidance of anything confrontational and negative within your life. We are all very dark and twisted up human beings, especially at more times than others. We all have dark sides. We think dark thoughts. It is important to recognize that it is normal to feel and think these things. If we choose to ignore them, that is when they become dangerous. Look no further than Carl Jung and Jordan Peterson as to why. When you are in tune with who you are as a person, you will naturally begin to understand yourself more. You will gain insights into your discipline and self-awareness you would never have a prayer of grasping if you live within the sphere of mindfulness. Or mindlessness, I should say. When you put yourself under rigorous analysis, you should be able to see your vices very clearly, very clearly and act to fix them. Mindlessness, technology embodying one of its fiercest forms, robs us of this ability. Because our brains are constantly distracted and spread so thin across the sphere of our consciousness, we cannot possibly tune into what is driving these concepts in the first place. There's simply too deep of a meditation and psychoanalysis to do without complete devotion to solving what could potentially be wrong with them, or to build up what you are doing well. Noise is not good for focus. Only in silence can you truly focus. Only in mindfulness can you truly become immersed in who you are as an individual and the qualities that make up that individual. And the main qualities that make up a, sound individual, a sovereign individual? Their values. Mindfulness is the gateway to truly self-examining what you hold and what you value closest. Without that analysis, you could be valuing the wrong things and therefore damaging yourself and others. When you adopt that analysis, you allow, yourself you allow yourself insight to your tiniest problems, the smallest wrinkles in your value hierarchy that can end up wreaking an immense amount of havoc should you let them. You might think you value respect, but you don't really see that you don't until you let your girlfriend walk all over you, or worse, if you throw shade at her constantly for not enabling your narcissism and neediness. You might think you value community, but you don't realize that you never give and that you only take. You might think you value religion, but you disavow all its teachings to win an argument on Twitter as soon as it best serves you. When mindfulness turns on, so does your understanding of yourself and your depths of internal being. You can see yourself in a clean mirror with nothing blocking the image in front of you. That is where the growth is. That is where elevation can happen. That is clarity personified. And not just within yourself. In your pursuit of mindfulness, you also might find more clarity about other things in your life as well. Because if mindfulness is in un uninterrupted insight within your own experiences, how everyone else's experience impacts your own will, be equally, will become equally as clear, or at least a little less murky. 
because odds are with the all the distractions with all the time you spend being plugged into the matrix, this murkiness can become our reality, and it has become our reality in a lot of cases. We never know where we stand with people. We don't know if that dude from Hinge is going to text you back. You don't know why your boss keeps sticking you over in team meetings when it comes time for your recognition. You don't know why your husband keeps spurning your intimate advances. It's likely nothing to do with you. It's likely everything to do with how you perceive things. You're probably not going about it the wrong you're probably going about it the wrong way because we have no fucking idea how to interact in our world when our world has become mostly made up and fake. You can't decipher what's real anymore. Because how could you? When your mind is being pulled a millimeter in a million directions, you cannot get anywhere meaningful or mindful in any one of them. There simply isn't enough time. There's too much ground to cross over. You drown in your own pursuit of mind pursuit of the mindless. But when you are mindful, you can get far in a multitude of places. When you observe everything going on with clarity and focus, not with no qual low quality nudges and pulls, you might be able to see some things that you couldn't before. You could observe some trends you could find either enlightening or troubling. You could see that maybe instead of that your instead that your boss isn't dicking you over in team meetings. Maybe you're always late to them. Maybe you're always talking out of turn. Maybe you're saying things you shouldn't to other people in order to gas yourself up while clamping down on them and their insecurities. You could see that maybe instead of blaming your professor for the B- you got in your physiology class, you could have spent a little more time hitting the books instead of hitting dollar bombs to the dive bar of your preference. That you could have put a silence on your distractions when you were in a 400-person lecture hall and actually, you know, pay attention to what your professor is saying that could be value to you and your GPA. You could have prepared in advance for what was most likely a difficult course instead of pulling a, I got this, and not trying at all. You could see that maybe your husband is spurning your intimate advances because you're suffocating him. Not literally, of course, unless you're seriously in need of an arc trainer. But you could always be up in his shit. You could be simultaneously Snapchatting him, texting him, and DMing him memes into other social platforms. You could not let him open up to you. You're too busy opening up to him. You shun responsibility for your own life and deflect responsibility onto him making him accountable for your narcissism and your ineptitude. None of this is possible when we aren't truly mindful about the things in our lives. When we aren't present. When we can't escape from the matrix. Because in reality, where we all live, the evidence is all right in front of us. It's going to be a choice of whether we choose to see that vision or not. Finally, and most importantly, it will show you who has your best interest for your own sake. Social media has its benefits, sure. But what becomes bad is when those benefic benefits get taken to excess. When you start to accumulate friends and followers for the sake of accumulating friends and followers. When you become obsessed with the number of people in your social Rolodex and spurn the quality of those folks that truly care about you. In reality, most of those people you interact with are just that. People you interact with. But in the Matrix... They become essential detractors from the reality of the world in which we live. You aren't close to the majority of them. You only share a proximity, if that, with them. They are not the same thing. Do not confuse them for such. But we do it all the time. We join sororities where they make us perform sexual acts and sit on running washing machines to exploit our bodily insecurities. We join expensive country clubs so that we seek social validation for our monetary sacrifices. Who needs saving for a college education when you can have a good in-ground pool with a diving board instead? We join the biggest and best companies because we want to be surrounded by the biggest and the best, whatever the fuck that means. If you truly enjoy the relationships with people who do these things, that is one thing. But if you do it for the validation, for acceptance that is not worth the price of admission, 
That is when something should be going off in your head. I don't know a single female in my life who would willingly submit to that kind of torment of a rational man who wants to see his children become educated to piss away his savings, of an ambitious young person who whores himself out for excess just to pursue something they don't know they know will fulfill them or will not fulfill them. Yet we do these things anyway, all the time. Our mindless pursuit of quantity has diluted our quality. It has cheapened everything around us in more ways than we can count. If we are mindful, we can free ourselves from enslavement. We can take conscious choosing over excessive excess, just like we talked about in Volume 1 of the July Comparison Series. But it must be exactly that. Our choice. No one else can choose this path for us. We are sovereign humans, who bear the burden of having to make conscious choices. Let's see if we can adopt a framework for that conscious choosing of mindfulness over mindlessness. But how can we do this? How can mindfulness be present in an ever non-present world? What can we do to permanently break from the matrix? What I will tell you first is this. There is no permanent break from the matrix. There are ebbs and flows. Technology at its core is supposed to be useful to us, to help us through changing times and better odds of success. We need to accept the fact that technology is a good thing in aggregate. But like anything, any virtue can become a vice when taken to excess. We must monitor our use of technology so that it is not vital to our existence. Then, we will cease to exist. We will not be able to see what between what is real and what is fake. We will not be able to cross over between the lines in order to determine our identities and who we are. Mindfulness can solve this problem. If we can see what we're doing, why we're doing it, and determine the thoughts in our head at a given time, we can better analyze if it is best serving us and our true intentions. We must combat the matrix and all its additive and compulsive poles with the approach of a balanced mindfulness in order to separate our worlds and see clearly into what we need to do to live well in both of them. But this also needs to be done with care. Mindfulness is just like mindlessness, or anything that falls into the same category. If it is taken to excess, it can be just as destructive as it is empowering. Too much in-depth dissection of your world can drive you mad. Too much awareness and knowledge can be counterintuitive to the purpose of the awareness and knowledge. Just ask Arena Spalco, she'll tell you. So what I propose is this. Start small. Anything more than you can chew and you could choke out in your own brain. Well, I don't know if that's anatomically possible or not. I don't think you should try it. But practice must be held at a constant rate if you want to achieve growth in anything, especially in something as important as breaking from the matrix. The first thing I would recommend is simple, but not easy. A lot has been made of multitasking. A lot has been made of doing multiple things at once, a cheat code of sorts. You do X, Y, and Z all at once and you get it done in time A. All should be well, right? Wrong. Again. Multitasking is for saps. It's doing a bunch of, it's doing a bunch of things half-assed at once most of the time. It's literally teaching you to be unmindful. The psychologists say so too. If you cannot give something your full attention, then you probably don't give them much of a shit about it as you thought. I've had people come up to me and tell me they've found their significant others texting while fucking. I thought it might have been one of those people who told me that. I talk to myself sometimes, okay? It's so easy for this to creep into our lives. Most of the time, we do it without even noticing. We listen to music while we drive. We talk to our families while eating dinner. 
We work out with music blasting in our ears. We have our phones open next to one another while doing everything. I'm currently doing as I'm, I was writing this sentence. While I'm not recommending that you break from all these things, I will not be giving up using and lifting at the same time anytime soon. I recommend that you try to minimize multitasking as much as possible. Life hacks do not work. Not sorry to shit in your cornflakes. I'm talking to you, Tim Ferriss. The reason for this is that there is no clear-cut model on how to live. That is the whole purpose of this blog. Look no further than Podcast Zero and this podcast. If you try to, it could work on some occasions, but you could royally fuck yourself on others. On an episode of Jocko Willing's podcast, he and his co-host Echo Charles received a question about business leadership and management from a guy who thought he was in the essence of Steve Jobs. I was floored. I laughed on the spot. To compare yourself to Steve Jobs, one of the most amazing and revolutionary business people of all time, especially when you're probably a middle manager for an insurance conglomerate, that's cute. Anyways, Jocko, in his typical Jocko style, did not laugh. He simply told it how, how it is. For those who are unaware, Steve Jobs is not only amazing and revolutionary, but was also incredibly short-tempered and tyrannical. That's the thing with those top .0001% of people. They tend to be perfectionists. They don't get why other people can't do what they do. Steve Jobs couldn't understand why people couldn't level with his immaculate display of design thinking, technology usage, futuristic attitude, and integration of modern technology. It's a tall ass for anyone, much less a mere mortal such as you and I. Bill Gates went to war with Steve Jobs numerous times. He may act, be, and look like a geek, but Bill Gates might have been more ruthless than Jobs. He bullied people into submission numerous times, on several different occasions probably than we even know in the media. Magic Johnson tried to close the, coach the Lakers. He quit after 16 games. Only Magic could do what he was born to do. That's a great commercial, by the way. Look it up. Not a lot of people played for the New England Patriots in the Belichick-Brady era for more than a couple of years. They couldn't fit the mold. A lot of people cannot be the businesswoman, model, singer, actress, and designer that Beyonce is. The point is, it's nearly impossible to multitask. If you are one of these people, my hat's off to you. But odds are, you are not. You are just as ordinary as the rest of us non-Jobs, Gates, Magic, Belichick, Brady, Beyonce, mere mortals. But this is a good thing. It means you have less on your plate. It means you can give your full attention to the task at hand without getting lost in the sauce of multitasking. When you only give yourself one thing at a time, and do that one thing really well at a time, you give yourself the chance to truly emulate doing a really good job at that one particular thing. That aspect of mindfulness is an underrated quality that not a lot can match, because too many people are distracted at hacking life. Don't be like these people. They're saps. And you should not want to be a sap. But sometimes just doing one thing at a time is not enough. Sometimes you should do nothing at all. Nothing. This is the traditional sense of mindfulness, the one that the Buddhists talk about. Even though Buddhist monks live in monasteries and do this for hours at a time, you can do this too. And it's called solitude. It's hard to find in a world that acts like a vampire. But I would argue that you must find it. Solitude allows you to enter the gateway to mindfulness. It puts you in touch with yourself and your surroundings. It allows you to create an atmosphere where you can be in tune with who you are as a person. To feel these emotions and those thoughts cross your mind and then let them be as they are. The monks do this with rigorous meditation. But this meditation is not just sitting in lotus and saying, Om. No. This meditation is brutal. Most of us, including myself, can't sit still without sleeping for more than five minutes. Our attention spans have become that diluted. These monks sit for hours thinking and observing their own thoughts. 
their darkest inhibitions and desires without moving or making a sound. It's amazing that these dudes haven't gone fucking crazy and started looting targets yet. But there's hope for us mere mortals and the target looters yet. We, in fact, do not have to become Buddhist monks in order to be practitioners of solitude. We simply have to seek it out. It does not have to be big or anything like that, but we must seek it for ourselves. And meditation is still a good way to go. This is not getting into lotus and saying om unless you want it to be. Simply sitting and focusing on breathing is a good way to go. I meditate all every day, or at least I try to, with an app on my phone focused on a particular chakra of energy, honing in on a particular word that corresponds with whatever chakra I have going and what I want to accomplish. I know that it's not a total break from the matrix since I'm using technology, but I find it soothing. I leave my phone far away from me, set a timer for 15 minutes, and then just think. For complete silence, I found this in another place of solace that I frequent, that I frequent often. The gym. The last couple weeks, and ever since then for a good amount of part, I've been experimenting with solitude within the confines of the gym. My gym, at least in times of the beer virus, opens up at 5 o'clock in the morning. I get up at 4, do some things around my apartment, drive over the gym, usually arriving by 4.45. We're usually let in a bit early, which leaves me some time before. I've never been one of those gym intimidation assholes who go right up to the windows and stare at the poor folks who own the place until they open the doors. So what I do is I avoid the early morning crowd entirely. In fact, I withdraw further away from them. I leave my car and sit on the curb of the parking lot. There, I don't put in music, do ten long breaths, and sit until the doors open. Sometimes I play music after, sometimes I don't. It's all about how I want to practice being alone and observing the world. I do this after I leave the gym as well. While working out, I try to take a break after a particularly hard set and do the same thing. I don't want to hog the bench or wherever I'm at with me doing nothing. That would make me a jackass. But what I do do is pause my music, sit up straight to open my chest, close my eyes, and breathe. Even if it's just, even if it's just five breaths, it's usually enough to clear my head and get my blood circulating. I always feel better after. That escape from the matrix is enough to keep me moving. These moments for solitude do not have to be large. They do not have to be anything totally removed from society, but they do need to be there. You just need to seek them in the activities of your choosing. If you do not, you risk succumbing to mindful, mindlessness in more areas of your life that are healthy for you. You and your relationships will suffer. And that is the final area where I would argue needs to be practiced. We've talked about empathic listening before, but I believe it deserves some reiteration within this, concept, this context. Empathic listening is all about mindfulness. It's all about creating an atmosphere in which you can display your empathy towards another person. If you are seeking to understand before you can be understood, you must be mindful. You cannot deploy these tactics unless you are. When you are mindful and listening to those with you, are, you are closest with, when you deploy empathic listening in your conversations, it allows you to take in as much information as possible. It allows you to be objective, to see your biases and conflations as they are happening, and to dispel them. It allows you to create optimal responses to help whoever you are trying to help. People appreciate mindfulness in these types of settings. A lot of people tell others what they want to hear, and this is wrong. Even if it gets the other person a little pissy at you, you must create an atmosphere where you can freely speak after you have deployed empathic listening to give that other person the best advice possible. It is the only way to speak to a person who is in true need of help. But there is also another reason. By doing this, by telling a person what they truly need to hear, you are also forcing them 
to be mindful, to listen to themselves, to confront their own problems, to take some responsibility for what they believe, feel, and think, and see if it's actually something they should believe. And this is a powerful gift to give, any, give to anyone. When you give that gift, you give that person the freedom to break out of the matrix. You give them the opportunity to not be a pawn, a puppet dance in the strings by mindless behavior and our technology overlords who control so many others. You give them the autonomy and opportunity for agency to, st to think for themselves. That is what escaping the matrix is really about. That is what liberation truly looks like. Escaping from the matrix is not a permanent break, but a mindset. It is reinforcing boundaries, something that we all need in any relationship in order to foster meaning and well-being. It is having enough courage to say no, the ability to move forward without narcissism and neediness towards our optional digital technology weighing us down. It is experiencing liberation and only leveraging those vices when we need them to further our own ascendance. Billy Corgan was right. The world is a vampire and it will drain you but only if you let it. If there is one thing that I have learned while writing these posts and doing these podcasts, it is that it is possible to not let it drain you. I was skeptical before I entered into the state, but after researching and writing about it for two months last year and even more this year, I know that the alternative to my former state is better. The grass is, indeed, greener on the other side. Now, do yourself a favor. Shoot your old technology-dependent self in the face. Put it out to pasture. I'll think you'll like what you find. Life outside the matrix is a life well lived. Okay, so everybody, that's my podcast for this week. Thank you guys for listening. I really appreciate it. I will probably be in the middle of dying or like my body bursting into flames in the New York City Marathon, but I want to wish you a happy next week, guys. Open the day. Oh, oh, yeah. Open the day. Open your mind. Have a good one. Thanks for listening, guys. Appreciate it. See you guys next week. Stopping, hopping like a rabbit When I take the Nina Ross, you know I got to have it I lay back in the cut, retain myself Think about the shit and I think it well How can I mix my grip? And how should I make that nigga straight?